Today's TribCast is presented by the Texas X's. Shirley Lee worked with the Mass Spec Pen, which helps doctors see where cancer growth begins and ends. Learn more about students who are changing your world at texasx's.org slash changingyourworld. And BumbleBiz, the new app of FOMO, or Fear of Missed Opportunity. You never know where you'll find your next side hustle, mentor, business partner, or ways to make more money. Download Bumble and choose Biz Mode now to find out. Texas talking, oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking, ah, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking, tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are Texas guys Hey, this is Jim Friedlich with the LenFest Institute for Journalism. We're based in Philadelphia, but we support great local journalism all over the country. You know, wherever we go, we hear people say that they want to start a Texas Tribune for Pennsylvania, a Texas Tribune for California, or a Texas Tribune for New York City. Texas, it sounds like you've started a trend. Enjoy this week's Tribcast. Here's your host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you. This is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, September 5th with your Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by CEO Evan Smith. Hi, and I want to say that the intro today, Jim Friedlich, what he did not say on that intro is he was the person who led our internal strategic planning efforts. And today we published our strategic plan, which presumes we're going to be here continuing to do this podcast. Hopefully, at least some of us will be here. It's like the worst news I've ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) Executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. And political reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. Should we deal with Ross's refrigerator problem first or last? Ross opened his fridge this morning and got hit with a wave of warm air. Warm air. air. Yeah, it was was a bad morning. So uh, along with your question, send in your refrigerator recommendations. Two words, restaurant supply. Commercial refrigerator. That's your answer. Sounds expensive. Says the vegan guy who doesn't need to keep any dairy cold. Mustard. Donald Trump. Let's talk about Donald Trump. Donald Trump made big headlines late last week saying he would come to Texas and host a rally for Ted Cruz in the, quote, biggest stadium I can find. Uh, When is he going to do this? Where? What is the biggest stadium in Texas? And do they want Donald Trump there? McKinney High or is it Katie? Yeah, (laughs) right. (laughs) Allen High School. Don't they have some the the $70 million crumbling seats stadium? Well, he said he said he would do it in October in his tweet, I believe. That rules uh, out Cowboy the, Stadium the, the month before the election, and I believe the the biggest stadium is is Kyle Field. Yeah, Texas, Texas A and M, right? Aren't there some like NASCAR arenas or something like that that are bigger? Oh, I thought that the Texas Motor Speedway might. Yeah, the have Texas right. Motor Speedway Greater turns capacity? out to have, How do you can, define stadium? It, it can, yeah, it can. Well, I, well, I don't know, Patrick. The Motor Speedway can accommodate the biggest crowd, the biggest. The, the biggest stadium, the stadium is Kyle Field. So. Okay, so yeah. what does Ted Cruz want with Donald Trump coming down here to campaign for him? And will they be able to really fill all those seats? Well, answer the, the first part of the question. Uh, <laughs> Kyle yeah, I mean, Field? Cruz wants to rev up the, the Republican base. He's, he's worried that there's some complacency there, that despite all the hype surrounding the race, that there are still some Republican base voters out there who think that, you know, it's Texas, you know, whatever. Cruz has got this. And, what could possibly you know, go wrong, and, right? You know, Trump has proven over, uh, you know, the, his first term that he is, so far at least, that he is, uh, you know, he's, I want to say skilled, but he is able to rev up the Republican base in a way that few other national figures can. And so Cruz uh, sees the enthusiasm that Trump could, could generate among Republicans and wants to obviously tap into that because he believes, again, one of his biggest problems could be Republican voters being complacent this election in Texas. But who would have believed this? 
Right. So Trump calls his, Heidi Cruz ugly or, in essence, intimates that Heidi Cruz is ugly. And suggests his father killed Kennedy. Killed Kennedy. He says himself during about Cruz himself during the campaign, Cruz is not legitimately able to be president because his citizenship is questionable. He said far worse things than that that are starting to pop up on billboards around Texas. So, you know, never apologizes to Cruz. Cruz endorses him after a while anyway. This relationship has been fraught. But Cruz has come around to the idea that Trump is the president that we need, and so it's probably not surprising, although it's ironic considering what happened in 2016, that in 2018, Trump rides in on a white horse to help Cruz, or a black horse, depending upon your point of view on this, and that Cruz gratefully accepts help that he seems to need. I mean, let's back away from the Trump thing for a second and acknowledge that this is a race that Cruz needs help in. Who would have imagined that? Two things. You know, Cruz is a little bit trapped here by the same thing that traps all the other Republicans. There's no daylight between Trump and Republican voters. It shows up in our polls. It shows up in everybody else's polls. He's really popular with Republican voters, and they don't seem to have a high tolerance for anybody in their party who's not with Trump. So they're all hugging Trump. The second thing is, you know, if you're going to try to excite the voters, you want to get them here and get Trump here, getting Trump here helps excite the Republican base. The danger is that it helps excite the Democratic base. In some ways, Beto O'Rourke is running against Trump as much as he's running against Cruz. If you did a Venn diagram, you guys, all of you, if you did a Venn diagram of Cruz voters and Trump voters, how much space in those two circles would not overlap? I think, you know, it's, I think it's very small. The, the approval of Trump's job rating in Texas is in the 80 85% range. I'd have to go back and look at our polls. And it's like that all over the country. There's just not much – there aren't many Republicans who are voting who, – who wouldn't support Trump. Now, one of the things that showed up in some of our polling and other polling is that there's a difference between Republican support for Cruz and for Greg Abbott. Well, see, that's where right. I'm going with this. Are there, are, so are those yeah, Trump right, voters right. or are those not Trump voters? I suspect they're Trump voters or Abbott would be saying something nasty about Trump. I mean, is it possible that this backfires and this actually just inspires more people in Texas who hate Donald Trump to get out and vote? I mean, I cannot imagine there won't be some massive counter rally to well, this. Well, Michael Avenatti apparently is planning to bring his whole, you know, Basta Fest 2018 <laughs> to Texas the same time that Trump is here. But I mean, what are we really, what are first, I mean, do any of you believe 100% that this is going to happen? That the Trump rally is going to happen? Yes. Oh, I absolutely believe it's going to sure happen. I think in terms of backfiring, I mean, you Trump, you know, like I, like we said, he obviously revs up the Republican base, but he is not, in terms of when you actually get him out on a stage campaigning for a candidate, you have no idea what he's going to say. Right. Uh, you know, there were some jokes, uh, you know, on Twitter when this was announced that he may, you know, Trump may suddenly revert to his old attacks on Cruz, which, like, let's face <laughs> right. it, I mean, there's like a non-zero chance that could happen, or you could at least kind of, you know, bring up the war stories from the campaign. And so, um, if I were Cruz, I'd be like, you know, somewhat worried. Right. What exactly is going to happen don't here? Be stuck to don't it. relax. Exactly. <laughs> so, well, you also I mean, don't know and, what yeah. point in the descent of the president politically cycle we're going to be in by October. You know, just based on the last two days alone, and especially the last day alone since the Woodward book has come out, I mean, you know, it's... it's but how um, many times in the last two and a half years have you said that? No, no, no. But I mean, it has been get a bus past a crazy town over the last 24 hours. Yeah, but I, crazy town has made no difference. Yeah, well, well to, but, yeah. but but to Patrick's point, I, I know it's made no difference in terms of the, the, the sort of puts and takes of the election. I'm saying that to Patrick's point, you don't know which Trump is going to show up at the rally. 
And if Trump is particularly agitated by something that happens that week, that day, that afternoon or evening, you could get Trump on stage swinging wildly and you don't know whether there's any blowback on Cruz. I suspect to the question that you asked that there's very little risk for Cruz because while Democrats may be activated by Trump's presence in Texas, the number of Republicans who will be activated in the negative by Trump's presence and will say, well, I was going to support Cruz until Trump came. Oh, that's is, tiny. It's pretty think, small. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. This is basically about the high ceiling and the low floor. That's it. Or the low ceiling and the high floor. I got that completely reversed. The people who are for Trump and Cruz are going to be for Trump and Cruz regardless. But the opportunity for them to win new people is also pretty low, I think. It's a, it's a base-affirming exercise. You know, the other thing that's a question here, and I don't, you know, this is, um, I've heard people speculate about this without really knowing, a lot of Trump's vote was first-time vote. And there's a question of whether those first-time Trump voters in 16 will come back in 18. And if you're in what looks by the polling to be a close race like Cruz is, you know, you want to make sure you've done everything to get those people off the sofas. Well, speaking of, of that race and how tight it looks, uh, the attacks on Beto O'Rourke from the Cruz camp and from what appears to be opposition research have been hitting hot and heavy over the last week. Uh, I want to run through a couple of them, but it sounds like, Patrick, you're in the middle of a story right now on one of those. Yeah, we're just looking at this video and, and statement that the Cruz campaign put out uh, on Tuesday uh, basically alleging that O'Rourke praised uh, flag burning at a town hall and, and said that he was grateful for people who did it. Um, this is based on a town hall that O'Rourke did Friday in El Paso. It's actually a, a town hall that he does as part of his official duties as a congressman every month in El Paso, not a campaign event per se. Uh, but some, uh, there was a man there who asked him uh, a couple of specific questions about the you know landmark Supreme Court case. I think it was Texas versus Johnson. That's about flag burning. And O'Rourke gave a very long-winded answer that reprised uh, kind of a lot of the points he made uh, in those famous comments defending the NFL players who kneeled during the national anthem. Uh, but at no point did O'Rourke explicitly uh, address uh, the issue of flag burning. And um, I mean, in fact, he sidestepped the questions of flag burning altogether. And in his answer, really just focused on this kind of broader point about civil rights protests. Um, you know, and so the Cruz campaign, you know, put together this very edited video suggesting that, you know, at the end of his answer, when O'Rourke said he can think of, uh, you know, that the, it's inherently American, uh, that that was specifically in reference to the issue of flag burning. Um, and so they made it appear as if he was saying that flag burning was American. Yeah, they made it appear as if he was directly weighing in on flag burning when he was just speaking more generally about civil rights protests while avoiding in his answer the entire issue of flag burning, um, which he was actually asked about in an event by uh, Madeline Meckelberg with the El Paso Times at, at an event in Austin a week ago. Um, this was already kind of bubbling up behind the scenes, and, and I think she asked him about uh, you know how the issue of flag burning can relate to what he was saying about uh, NFL uh, protests. And he said, look, I don't think anyone should burn the flag. And he said, these are two separate issues. Um, he obviously you know, disagrees with the fact that the NFL protests are protests of the flag. Clearly, those players have said that they're protesting not the flag, but uh, you know, police shootings and racial inequality. Right. Well, some of the other um, hits that have been coming, there was a Houston Chronicle article that revealed the police report from Beto's DWI arrest two decades ago that showed not only did he get into this drunken crash that he allegedly tried to flee the scene, which was information that I did not know ahead of time, and that seems to me to be far more damaging than just a DWI arrest. I'm not going to defend people who drive drunk, and I'm not going to defend people who attempt to flee DUIs. I will say 
that we all do unbelievably stupid stuff when we're young, for which we owe the world an apology, for which we should be remorseful. But the question is whether you as an individual running for office 20 years later should be judged in that moment as a candidate for elective office on the basis of one incredibly stupid thing that you fully acknowledge and take responsibility for from 20 years ago. How old was he when it happened? It was 20 years ago. It was 1998, So how old is he now? 40-something-something. So he was in his early to (laughs) mid-20s? Yeah. He was 26 when it happened. 26 is not a child. 26 well, but is you know an what? Adult. George W. Bush was George Patrick Spitek, the oldest 26-year-old <laughs> on the planet. 26 going on the crypt keeper, okay? <laughs> no, uh, uh, listen, listen. Well, that got ugly quick. I'm, I'm certain that I passed out drunk on a path train coming back from Hoboken when I was 26. The you, reality yeah, you weren't is, look, driving a car. No, look, the reality you were responsibly is when, on George a path w, train. when George W. Bush was in his supposed younger, wilder days, I seem to remember him getting elected president after having been younger and wilder at one point. I am not defending what Congressman O'Rourke did, not at all. I am stepping back and asking whether people are going to be defined by one thing that they did 20 years prior. That's hardly new in politics. It's hardly new. Yeah, guys do it in the legislature all the time. (laughs) We turned away a Supreme Court justice just a few years ago who had tried pot once. I mean, you know, youthful indiscretion is yeah. part of the part of the formula. Oh, it's, yeah. it's 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 absolutely legitimate for discussion, but I don't think that. I mean, I'm t- I'm the addressing specifically youth, Emily's right. point about his whether voters this is, don't care. You know, well, we, whether right. they care, and I mean, look, they've they've tried to reduce him to a drunk, punk rock, flag burning, cross dressing, cursing. You know, none of those, by the way, have anything to do with issues that he would have to deal with as a United States senator. They have gone completely at him on personal and on character terms, which also, like Ross says, totally legitimate, exactly what you do in politics. But that is the tack they've taken. They have not litigated this as a campaign of ideas yet. Yeah, I would say for the for the this this the Houston Chronicle report that you referenced that had these kind of new additional details about the arrest. I would say for the group of voters that are still getting to learn Beto O'Rourke, and there is still a sizable group of voters that are still getting to to know about him. I would say that this does put somewhat of a, you know a little more of a sour taste in their mouth about what before they probably thought was just kind of this youthful indiscretion. That being said, though, I think among that set of voters and the voters who already know him and know Cruz, um, this has this whole issue has been somewhat neutralized all along because O'Rourke hasn't shied away from it. Now, he hasn't been going across the state and <laughs> sharing every detail of the rest as, as, as laid out in that Houston Chronicle story, but he has spoken very openly about it uh, and about the other arrest in his past, which I think was for trespassing. And, hopping, and by the way, neither resulted, neither resulted in any uh, criminal charge, right. correct? Neither. Right. Yeah, he was never convicted in either case. You I know, believe, this, is, this sort of loops back to what we were talking about a minute ago. Most of the stuff that Cruz is talking about about O'Rourke lights up Cruz's voters more than it lights up right. O'Rourke's voters. It's not really peeling people off, but he's, you know, getting Republicans to see a, you know, as cartoonish a version of a Democrat as they can see so that they'll get off the couches. It's all part of that same thing we were talking about. You would have to believe that there are people out there considering voting for Beto O'Rourke until they hear that he once put on a dress in a promotional photo for his punk rock band. Now, I'm not voting for him. If anything, I think, you know, the bad language and the, you know, punk rock, long hair, floral dress pictures actually make the, you know, left sort of light up and think this is maybe somebody who's relatable. Wait, that's interesting. That's cool. (laughs) Cool. Relatable? (laughs) Evan, you don't have a black floral dress stage. I don't have a floral dress past. When you were 26 years old. I have a cursing present. 
that, but that I don't is have true. a floral dress past. Ross had a good column about uh, about Beto's bad language. Well, it was about bad language, and it was also about right. this sort of you know the more interesting thing is how you can throw in something like bad language or something like the conversation about kneeling during the anthem, and it splits the crowd. You can say the same thing, and the O'Rourke yeah. voters come up you know very strongly for O'Rourke. Follow my Twitter feed today. And the Cruz voters come up very strongly against him. The same we, thing we happens. We just got finished saying when, that we were expecting Ted Cruz to gratefully take help from uh, a president of the United States who, right. according to Bob Woodward, said, let's fucking kill Assad. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's not you know, like, I only like cursing when it's done by my guy. Right. Right. Well, that's I mean, exactly right. But, you know, you're using it to split the crowd and you're using the anthem thing to split the crowd, half of which sees it as an anti as an anti-patriot thing. That has to do with the national anthem. Half of it has, sees it as something about police violence. Right. So, I, I would keep an eye here. And this, some, I think, always goes without saying. But everything that we've discussed so far in terms of the attacks on our work have been these one-off digital ads that cost like a dime to make. It's been the Texas GOP tweets trolling them over the DWI arrest or whatever. Right. Um, you know, important I think to keep a focus on what they're actually paying big money to air about this person and actually looking at what the real paid media is, what the TV ads are so far. Um, and there you see a slightly different tone. And I think that's where you see where they believe he's most vulnerable or they can rev up their base the most. I mean, the TV ads we've seen in this race so far, Cruz's campaign, I think was only on TV for a week, couple, you know, early last month. That was the um, Harvey ad, the That was the ad. kind of positive yeah. Harvey Cruz ad. Then there was these, there were three negative O'Rourke ads talking about uh, drugs, talking about immigration, talking about impeachment. Um, and then you had some outside groups get on TV this race. One of them is a pro-Cruz super PAC, Texans are. Their ad was entirely about immigration, border security. And then you had one from the Club for Growth uh, that was about this kind of imminent domain dispute that originated from O'Rourke's time on the El Paso City Council. So um, th all that other stuff obviously gets people talking. I think that's the aim of it. But I think it's always fascinating to see the divide between that stuff and then what's actually what the the groups and the campaigns are actually paying real money to broadcast about this guy on TV. So if yeah. I'm watching MSNBC in Austin, I'm likely going to see the Beto O'Rourke ad because he's targeting people who are watching, you know, what is blue content in a blue community, I'm sure. assuming. So I've seen this Beto ad, you know, during Brian Williams. That's just him running around the state being with people, right. arm draped on people. So that's a positive ad. He's basically, he doesn't even mention Cruz really. He's just basically talking about I'm every place and all that. Is he, you think Patrick, he's going to run negative ads on Cruz? I think he has been on the record saying he doesn't plan to run negative ads against Cruz. I mean, we always see promises like that. Right? Well, <laughs> he's on the record with us saying he wasn't going to do television. <laughs> well, he's, he's, obviously he's kept the super PAC promise. That, this is a sure. big thing that this he is, has said. This, this is interesting. I don't know that you need to. You know, Cruz has run for president and everybody has sort of formed an opinion about him. And I don't, you know, the race here is to get the people who haven't formed an opinion about Beto O'Rourke to form one, you know, Cruz and the negative, O'Rourke and the positive. But, you know, opinions about uh, Cruz right now seem pretty locked in. I don't know if that you have to say anything yeah, about I mean, it. Or, for, or that there's any revelation yeah, I mean, that didn't pop up in the presidential race. Right. I mean, for O'Rourke, this is not a base turnout election like it is for Cruz. I mean, this is a, a persuasion election in some ways. But who's he persuading? Un he's, trying to get not, he's trying to get people who have not voted the to apathetic. vote. The apathetic. Right. Not he's not trying to persuade and he's trying to, he's not to persuade Republicans so to vote for him. Positive right. persuasion, right? right. Yeah. All right. So we have a lot of questions on uh, social media. So I want to do a quick lightning round. This means short answers to these Beto O'Rourke, Ted Cruz questions. Andrew asks th thoughts on O'Rourke and Ellen DeGeneres. 
Every piece of free media he gets is a win for him. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I think you're going to get a lot of Cruz supporters muttering lesbian under their breath. I think that's already happened on social media. You've had basically the Cruz people saying, oh, he's going on Ellen, <laughs> well, you know, without needing to fill in the blank. Nancy wants to know what's going on with debates. Is O'Rourke going to debate issues? Cruz wants to debate issues. Right. I mean, right now there has been no debate schedule locked in. O'Rourke said, I think Thursday at an event last week in Midland, that he had hoped to maybe announce some uh, debate times within the next week. So that would get us to this Thursday of this week. We haven't heard anything yet. uh, Cruz was on radio yesterday morning and and sounded more doubtful than I've ever heard him that they actually would have debates. He said there really hasn't been much progress. Well, what is O'Rourke to announce? He's going to basically do the Greg Abbott play. I'm going to be on this date at this time in this place. Show up or don't. Everybody's going to have a strong arm announcement or whether it's going to be like an announcement of mutual uh, decision making. Do do you all think that that O'Rourke, ordinarily the challenger is eager to a debate because they want to be elevated to the position of being equal to the incumbent in a race like this. Do you think that O'Rourke in this case needs to debate Cruz or is he better off doing his own thing? He's not fighting for oxygen in the same way that some of the down ballot Democrats are. You know, he's not looking for airtime in the way that a Mike Collier is or the way that a Kim Olson is. And so I would say no. I would say, you know, you you know, it's optional for him at this point in terms of, you know, getting known and talking to the public. I, I agree. And I also think the premise of interviewing uh, of, you know, being in a debate with Ted Cruz is probably pretty terrifying because Ted Cruz is an excellent debater. Yeah. Do you think Cruz needs to debate O'Rourke for his own sake? I think you have an incumbent who seems far more apt to debate a challenger because this race is close and Cruz knows he performs in those settings. Yeah, a way to, another way to put what Emily just said is, you know, a debate is Cruz's home field. I think Cruz would love it. Mm. All right, one more. Uh, Mark wants to know, is this going to be a Wendy Davis redux? No. Why? Well, I think, first of all, very, very big picture. It's a completely different political environment uh, nationally and in Texas than it was in 2014, which is actually kind of a red wave year in some ways nationally. I mean, that's that's always the year I remember when Republicans took the governor's office in like Massachusetts and Illinois. Um, Maryland. So, Maryland. Um, and so completely different environment. Um, the polling, the public polling, there was, there's obviously were always these Republican criticisms of public polling in both these races, but the public polling on average never got this close in the Wendy Davis race. I think you can look back on the, the real, real, clear, real clear politics average on the Wendy Davis race, and it was like the final average is maybe 11 points or something like that. Uh, we're down to like six or seven point average on the public polling in this race. Again, obviously Republicans disagree with a lot of that stuff. Um, so, and the, the money, and I've said this before, the, mo- the money is different, and I think this gets lost in terms of the strength of the work online fundraising machine um, and fundraising overall. Wendy Davis was a state candidate, had no caps whatsoever. Uh, people could sit down and write a million dollar check to her as someone actually and, and did. And <laughs> someone Austin. actually right, did. Right, yeah. um, Hopefully a future know, donor to the Texas Tribune. These, these fe- <laughs> yeah, if you're out there. I've been trying. No, I'll t- I know her name. Hello, hello. <laughs> I've written her a letter. Uh, O'Rourke is subject to these federal fundraising limits, and so he's forced to build this much broader, bigger base of financial support, and in that way it makes his fundraising, I think, more impressive. You, have, you also have to understand that with Wendy Davis, as much as Wendy Davis attempted to transcend her moment of celebrity, that moment of celebrity trailed her around during the campaign for good and for ill. The Congressman O'Rourke does not have the same issue, not the literal same literal issue, but the same more existential issue of being associated with one thing. 
and and having that one thing be something that actually divided people. So. All right. Uh, before our next topic, I just want to quickly thank another TribCast sponsor, Lobby Days. Lobby Days is the only software that automates the process of setting up a lobby day at the Capitol. Learn more at lobbydaysmedia.com. All right. So we've got about five minutes left. And what I want to do is uh, actually this is a suggestion of Ross's, and that is to rank the competitiveness of some of the other um, congressional races that we're looking at in this cycle. Um, the you know incumbency of John Carter, Culberson, um, Will Hurd, Pete Sessions. As you look at those sort of considered to be more competitive congressional races, um, who is most at risk? Who is least at risk? You know, Evan should start this because he started it with a text among among us. It was, it was sort of interesting. So, well, so the way the question was posed to me was rank the Democrats in the open races or rank the Democrats who are considered to be competitive. They're not all open races, but they're competitive uh, where there's an assumption that there's the Democrats have a, a whiff of a chance. And some of those are races that were already going to be competitive because Hillary Clinton won the district when the incumbent Republican won the congressional district last time. So those were on the radar screens of everybody. But a number of other races have become competitive over time. So my response was Fletcher in Houston has the best chance, my view, all red, very close behind in Dallas as a second. I actually put MJ Hager third ahead of Gina Ortiz-Jones in my mind as of today because the dynamics of that race and the dynamics of the Jones-Herd race lead me to believe that if there's an opportunity for the Democrats to sneak in under cover of darkness and exit the building with a safe, that's the race in which that's going to happen. Why do you think Why do you think the dynamics have changed in the Ortiz-Jones-Herd because, race? Because that is a 50-50 district, and she has not yet prosecuted the case against Herd in a way that has given her room in all but a wave where I would feel confident in her chances. Despite the Beto, the excitement around Beto O'Rourke and San Antonio El Paso. San Antonio is effed up, I'm sorry, as an, for Democrats of late. That is a very – and then the, the non-San Antonio part of that district is small-c conservative. Um, you know, F Fletcher is running in Houston and in Harris County – which went for Obama over Romney in 2012 by 1,000 votes or fewer and went for Clinton over Trump in 2016 by 160,000 votes or more. Fertile ground. As Ross has pointed out, Dallas County is fertile ground for Democrats. If I'm all red, I'm benefiting from that. Hager has just done something up to this point that makes me more confident in her chances. But let me go below the Jones thing very quickly and say, I think that Shri Kulkarni in... Um, Fort Bend County, and Todd Litton in the Poe District are more competitive at this point than I expected them to be, and I would give them as much of a chance or more as I'm sitting here right now than Joseph Kopser in the Smith District in 21. Ross. You know, uh, CD23. Prove Evan wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, the, the only two I'd change there, I would uh, put Hager's chances better than Allred's chances. So probably... Oh, is that Wait, right? Wait, so do it again. Do I, your I would, I would, Lay out your I would, order. I would flip uh, two and three. So Fletcher... Hager, Allred, um, Jones is, is the order I would do. CD23 is more Republican in gubernatorial election years than it is in presidential years. Bigger turnout in presidential elections makes that district more Democratic. So the best chance for a Democrat is presumably when a, Demo when a president is on the ticket. They're not on the ticket. Hurd's been a pretty strong candidate. Redistricting helped them in San Antonio. The weirdness of San Antonio helped. And I, and I just don't think Jones has been as good a candidate he, as he has. The reason I would change the order is because I think Hager-Carter is a better matchup because you have a 
challenger who's caught some fire in a district where the demographics are changing and an incumbent who's been a little slow to get into the fight. Patrick, any differing opinions on this? Yeah, I mean, of those top three races, I would probably do uh, all red Fletcher Jones. And um, I, think the, I think the question of what's going on in Texas 23 is really fascinating. We've seen a number of national political forecasters now move it from a toss-up to leans Republican, so giving her this slight advantage. And so it's a question of, you know, what's going on there that isn't happening in 7 and 32. I mean, just on the surface of it, and this is held true throughout the cycle, Hurd is someone who is not going to be caught sleeping. I mean, he's, you know, in one of those seats that's always nationally targeted. He has to run a re-election campaign two years at a time or, you know, throughout the entire cycle, you know, the minute he gets reelected, he's, he's running again. And so I think he's, he's battle tested in that regard. And he's, he's, he's ready for this. And then there's this question of readiness that have dogged Sessions and Culberson. And, and you think about, you know, in, in, in wave environments, how do congressmen survive or how do members of the house survive? And it's when they're able to establish their own kind of brand that's distinct from the national environment. Hurd has done that very well in, in Texas 23 by, by splitting with the president on some, some big issues. Um, Democrats obviously disagree with that. They think that he's taken some votes in the past. Well, and Jones this week said something that about and that's, that's 90, the case, 95% with Trump. That's right? the yeah. case that Pete tried to prosecute against Hurd in, in 2016, that he's not this independent as, as much as you think he is. Like, look at his voting record. And that's the case that Jones, uh, it looks like, is trying to prosecute again this time. We'll see if it works now that Trump's actually in office. Um, but going back to my original point, then to Culberson and Sessions, it's, you know, have they built these distinct brands that could weather a wave? You've seen some... I I haven't been following 32, the session seat, very closely recently, but you've seen Culberson make a little progress in talking about being on the Appropriations Committee, being, I think his term is like the right man at the right time for Harvey uh, aid. Um, Lizzie Fletcher obviously being critical of him not being proactive enough on in that regard, but you see him trying to build that brand a little bit. I, I don't know where exactly Sessions is in that is in that pursuit, but uh, the, the question of Texas 23, I think, is, is fascinating. And it's interesting to see it being moved from toss-up. To one of the nice things that we'll know if after Election Day, we can talk about it now and speculate, and we're not going to really know until we know, is... That's how we stay employed. Is, <laughs> I, I, I certainly have no idea how that's the case. Um, could Hurd win and Sessions and Fletcher lose? I think the answer is yes. Could Sessions and Fletcher win and Hurd lose? I have a harder time believing. It's, yeah, it's all that. these are all local elections, right? I mean, yeah, yes. and then there's a question of if the if O'Rourke wins somehow. I can't believe O'Rourke would be the only Democrat to win. I think if O'Rourke wins, that is more of an indication that there's been some well, I wonder wave if he, and that the congressional yeah. folks maybe all win, but then it's possible for the congressional folks to win, but for him to lose. Well, and does O'Rourke, someone like O'Rourke really improve MJ Hager's chances? You know, you saw her, ad, her ad out this week right. that was all about that, that was based in the tattoo parlor. You know, it seems like some of the sort of like, you know, bad boy narrative can work across the board same appeal that he's finding. She's got the advantage of not having to run after Greg Abbott. So you're on the ballot and you're going down the ballot and you vote for Cruz or O'Rourke and you and that may be a close race according to the polls. And then you vote for your member of Congress and then you vote for the governor and that's not a close race. So is are you running on uh, you know O'Rourke's um, coattails or on Lupe Valdez's shoulders? Yeah, but if O'Rourke turns out, you know, how many 
What is the Democratic percentage of that district? That's, is it a 35% Democratic district, a 40% traditionally, all other things equal, the district that she's in, that she's running in, 31? Typically, Democrats don't have candidates to vote for. They're not particularly enthusiastic about turning out. If O'Rourke, by going to all 254 counties, including presumably Bell County and going to you know, Williamson County and everything else, if more Democrats turn out, just a couple more because of O'Rourke, he may not win, but he could help her win, right? I think in that respect... He may be the blocking back for some of these folks in the congressional races, regardless of the outcome of his race. We just don't know. All right. Well, that's all the time we have this week. If you haven't gotten enough of your Texas Tribune fill today, I want to point you in the direction of our website, where today we rolled out the Tribune's first ever strategic plan. Everything you need to know about where we're headed between now and 2025. Take a peek and let us know what you think. Thanks to Shiny Ribs, as always, for our music, and to the Texas X's, Bumble Biz, and Lobby Days, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Evan, Ross, Patrick, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas Viola, <clears throat> not enough cussing. Questions. More cussing. Aaron, thank you for coming.